chapter 5 this morning, and we will be finishing Hebrews chapter 1 this morning, verses 5 through 14. And you may make note as we come to the reading of God's Word once again that Hebrews 1, verses 5 through 14 is a continuation of the same point made in verses 1 through 4, which showed the exalted greatness of Christ. And so now the author turns specifically to using the angels, uh, mediators, as it were, of the former revelation as a point of comparison to further show the exalted greatness of Christ by demonstrating Christ's superiority to the angels. So with that in mind, I invite you to turn to Hebrews 1, picking up in verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years have no, will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Let's pray. O oh, Father, hear our plea for wisdom and understanding. Hear our plea for nourishment from your word, which is able to make us wise unto salvation. Show us Christ this morning in your word. Convict our hearts concerning the ways in which we have failed to love him as we ought, and build us up through the preaching of him who died for us and secured for us an eternal redemption. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, you probably notice, uh, if you have a Bible which sets off quotations of scriptures, uh, of other scriptures, in the sermon, or in the text, you'll notice that the vast majority of what makes up our text this morning is actually quotation from the Old Testament, uh, particularly a couple of Psalms. And so that makes our approach to this text a little bit different in that we're going to spend a lot of time simply uh, referring to these texts in the original context to understand how the author of Hebrews is using them and applying them to Christ and teaching his audience about who Christ is. And so for that reason, in part, it would be best for us to begin by zooming out a bit to try to get a handle on the flow of thought. Um, all of the New Testament letters, all of the books of the Bible for that matter, follow a flow of thought. Now, maybe you have a book like Proverbs in which the units are pretty small. Maybe you have something 
like the book of Genesis that tells a very large story that encompasses many centuries. Well, in the letter to the Hebrews, there is a, um, a very particular development of thought that the author is pursuing. And from the first verse to the very last, there is a unity of thought in this book. And so it does us well to, to seek to understand the big picture of that thought. Now, most of you are aware of, of the proper way to approach the scriptures and how to read them. Uh, it's kind of like, it's not the same thing, but it's kind of like reading a book of instructions in the sense that you don't pick up a manual of instruction and just flip to a page and read three sentences and expect to understand what it's talking about. No, you need to understand what comes before, what comes after, otherwise it won't make much sense. If you read the three sentences or, or whatever you pick in light of the rest of the manual, then it all starts to come together. And so the flow of thought then for the book of Hebrews, we said last week that the theme is essentially a pastoral exhortation to faithfulness by reminding the audience of who Christ is. They're struggling in many ways, and he points them back to their Lord and Savior and says, remember who this Jesus is. He's continuing on that same theme. And particularly in chapter 1, the emphasis is, as we've said, the greatness of Christ. He is exalted over all other things. He is the uncreated one. But the trajectory, that's the thing. Not just where are we here in this chapter, but what's the trajectory? Where is the author going? Where do we need to prepare ourselves today to be going in the coming weeks as we continue our study? Well, what's coming in chapter 2 is admonishment concerning the message of the gospel. Now, we've already kind of seen that. Uh, we saw that last week in the comparison of how God spoke formerly and now how he has spoken with finality in Christ. But in chapter 2 is coming an admonishment to the audience. And the simple point made is, if this former revelation, that is everything given prior, prior to Christ coming in the flesh, the message, as the author calls it, declared by angels, if that was trustworthy, if that was uh, true, and if everything that it said came to pass, then how much more should we give regard to the message given by God's own Son? And so the approach then is to take this sure word that was delivered by the angels in terms of them being mediators and to show Jesus' superiority in order to demonstrate what? The certainty of the message that we can trust it, that it is good, and that it is worthy of our rest in what has been conveyed. Now there's also an underlying theme uh, pulled in with this string of references to Old Testament passages, and I briefly just want to kind of summarize that there. It begins in verse 5 with, You are my son, today I have begotten you. It concludes with verse 13, which is Psalm 110 that we just sang. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. By quoting six Old Testament passages and applying them to Christ, the author shows that in the Old Testament, the angels were, in fact, declaring Christ for the sake of the elect, pointing them to him. In other words, Christ is not 
attendant to God's plan and purpose of salvation. He is the pinnacle of that plan and purpose for salvation. And all along, the scriptures were pointing to him. And so today's passage offers us three ways in which Jesus is superior to the angels in order to make the case that his message is true and that he is worthy of our faith and trust. First of all, starting in verse 5, we see the case made that Jesus is superior as a son. All right, now we saw this same point made in verses 1 through 4, but now the author provides us some Old Testament citations uh, to further impress Jesus' sonship upon us. Now, I do want to say at the start that there are other people referred to as sons of God in the Scriptures. This includes the angels, this includes... David, this includes ourselves. But the distinction being made here is that, especially in regard to the angels, no angel was ever called the Son of God. No angel is ever referred to as the unique Son of God. And so the emphasis here in these first couple of verses is on Jesus' unique relationship to the Father as Son. Now, the, the point really is simple, and it's formed, it comes from, rather, a rhetorical question that is posed. All right, that picks up in verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say? All right, so he's asking the question. To which angel did God ever say these things? You are my son. Today I've begotten you. That's quoting Psalm 2-7. Or likewise, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Quoting 2 Samuel 7-14. Furthermore, it goes on in verse 6 to quote Deuteronomy 32 and verse 43 as it's translated in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the scriptures, and makes the statement, let all God's angels worship him. And so the question is, to which of the angels has God ever said these things? And the implied answer, strongly implied answer, is none. God never said these sort of things to any angel, which begs the question then, well, to whom then or about whom was he speaking? Clearly, the point of the author is he was speaking about Jesus, the Christ, the eternal word of God himself. Now, from these passages quoted here, these three quotations, there's really two major ideas to be grasped. Number one, point we've already made, the fact that all of the Old Testament points to Christ. You have a sampling here. You have a psalm, Psalm 2-7. You have a, a historical book, 2 Samuel. And then you have part of the Torah, Deuteronomy. So these are three uh, subsets of Scripture. And he's chosen these three passages, passages to show the fullness of the Old Testament points to Christ. But the second major idea is this. It's the fact that the doctrine of Christ is explicitly present in the Old Testament. That's important for us to grasp because oftentimes you'll hear people talk about that, well, you know, we don't really see the Trinity in the Old Testament. Um, now, they might concede that, well, in the beginning, Genesis 1, we do see the Father and the Spirit, but we don't see anything of the Son. But what our author is showing us right here is that we absolutely do. The, the reality of the person of the Son is clear even in the Old Testament, in these passages that have been cited here. But now there's something else that the author wants to accomplish, and that is to at least make a, a sub-point on how 
the sonship of Christ is different from the sonship of the angels or the sonship of David, even for that matter. In Psalm 2-7, he says, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now that's taken to be speaking, speaking of David. But here's one of the mistakes that we often make when we try to think about and comprehend the doctrine of the Trinity, and particularly how the person of the Son uh, fits into that doctrine. Now, one of the things, this is very prominent in, in our evangelical culture today, is to make the assumption that God accommodates himself to creation. Now, what I mean by that is we almost tend to think of creation and created categories. That is the way that we think about things, the way that we pro—the uh, I'm looking for—the way we process things. We take that and assume that God accommodates Himself to it and says, "All right, well, since that's the case, I'll use that and try to minister to them." But essentially what we're doing if we say that, or if we start to think that way, is we're saying there's something outside of God. There's truth that exists outside of Him. There is reality that exists outside of Him, that is distinct from Him. But the very first chapter of the Bible precludes that. It says, in the beginning, God created everything. All things are from Him and through Him and to Him. And so the reality is actually just the opposite. God does not accommodate himself to creation, but rather creation from the beginning was accommodated to God. So if you've been with us on Wednesday nights, this has kind of been a very big theme of the teaching series we've been watching on the foundations of covenant theology. And it's this idea that if you look at the beginning, you look at the heavens, the created heavens, the created earth, you look at... Eden specifically, and the Garden of Eden mentioned in Genesis 1 and 2, that all of that creation is a replica of heavenly reality. That is, it's intended to communicate truth about heavenly realities. Now, I bring all of that out to say this. When Jesus then is referred to as the Son, that's not God taking earthly categories and applying it to Jesus. No, That is God stating what is eternally true in the fellowship of the divine trinity and showing that those created categories as we experience them are reflections of eternal realities. Now, I know that's a lot to think about, so let's let's go a little further then. But state it simply this way. The idea of sonship exists as a reflection of a heavenly reality, an eternal one. And so that's why we see the concept of son applied intentionally in a number of key ways in the Old Testament. So think about Adam. We mentioned that last week, I believe it was, that in Luke's gospel, in the genealogy, Adam's referred to as the son of God. We see that idea replied to Israel in Exodus chapter 4, when God brought Israel, or rather when he promises to bring Israel out of Egypt, he calls Israel my firstborn son. And then obviously in Psalm 2, we see the idea of sonship applied to David in 2 Samuel 7, applied to David's offspring. The idea there is that all of these realities in which God says this person or this group of people is my son is reflecting, pointing to a heavenly reality. Now, 
While all of this points to this eternal reality that we've mentioned, the text cited actually make the point by referring to uh, things that happened in time and space. That's really what it gets to with the peak of this text in Psalm 110 in verse 13, where it says there, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The idea is that this is referring to the exaltation of Christ. That is, that point after his resurrection and in his ascension when he was seated at the right hand of the Father on high. Now, how do we get there? Well, in part, Psalm 2, quoted back in verse 5, is an enthronement psalm. The verse prior to the one quoted says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. 2 Samuel 7 refers to the one who will come to the throne. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 43 refers to how God the Son is worthy of worship and His rightful rule. So what is in view then is this Son's enthronement at the right hand of the Father on high. All of this is God's way of revealing to His creatures the eternal reality that already was and that this is, can in no way be applied to the angels. So that's the key. None of this that has been said can be applied rightly to God's angels. They are created beings. The Son is eternally uncreated. He is God, which is the point that is made in the bulk of this passage from verse 7 through verse 12. That Jesus is superior as the eternal God. Now, if there was ever any doubt what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God, it's clarified here. All right, we have a quotation here in verse 8 from Psalm 45 and verse 6. We have in verses 10 through 12 a quotation from Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. Now, if you go and read those psalms in their original context, you wouldn't necessarily come out of them saying, yeah, that's talking about Jesus, the Word, the Son. No, you would say that's talking about God. And you would be right. But those two things are not in contrast to one another. And that's the author's point. It is to say that what is true of God is true of God's Son. With particular emphasis on His eternal unchangeableness. Remember we call that immutability. Which is a very precious doctrine we said. The fact that God does not change. And that's the key um, reality. The key attribute that our text keys in here is God's unchangeableness and the unchangeableness of the Son. And he does that in part by comparing it to the changeableness of the angels. Now with all these quotations, it can be easy to get lost, so we must look uh, for that common theme that ties them all together, which as we have said is that unchangeableness. Now how do we get there? Well, in verse 7, we have an interesting quote that oftentimes it can be easy to get lost in. But it says, He makes His angels winds and His ministers a flame of fire. Well, it's, all right, what is that talking about there? What's, what is this deal with the angel becoming winds and the ministers a flame of fire? Well, admittedly, it's, it's hard to say whether we're to take this literally or figuratively. Literally saying he makes the angels into winds that blow, into fires that come forth and consume? We don't know. But regardless, the point being made, whether literal or figurative, is that wind and fire are changing elements. 
If you think about the wind, Jesus uses that analogy in John 3, that the wind blows where it wishes. You look at it, you can't see it. You can't predict where it's going to go. And it's all the time shifting back and forth. Fire is the same way. It can take off, but it's also influenced by other things around it. If things are wet, it's not going to go very far. If things are very dry, as it is here, it's going to take off in a hurry. The flames change. What does it have to do with the angels? What it has to do with the angels is that they are created beings. Changing beings. That's evident by the fact that scriptures teach that so many angels fell from heaven because they turned from God and followed Satan. They are mutable beings. And additionally, not only are they mutable, but they are completely subject to God's creative will. It doesn't just say that they're winds of their winds and their flames of fire, but rather he makes them winds and flames of fire. Now there's a contrast given here. Because human experience tells us that it's not mankind that is unchanging. And that's kind of the connection. So maybe we say, well, all right, this is great about angels and God, but what does this have to do with me? Well, we can come reading this, and as we see the point being made that the Son of God is unchanging, the angels are changing, that reminds us of ourselves that we too are changing. We have passions. We're subject to things that influence us. And in a negative sense, the fact that we are changing is why relationships fail. It's why contracts get broken, and so on and so forth. And the idea is that this unchangeableness is the key distinction between that which is created and that which is the creator. Fundamental distinction. The creator unchanging, the creation changing. And verse 7, quoting that Psalm 104 Mentions of the messengers being subject to his will, being changing. But then it goes on, verses 8 and 9, to quote Psalm 45. Now, if you have time to go there in your own time, you'll notice that it's clearly a messianic psalm, meaning it's speaking of the Christ who is to come. But it's doing so in a way that focuses on the rule of God over his creation. All right, so it's one of those you know, exalting psalms that speaks of God's rightful place in his interaction with creation. But here we find another interesting phrase. And don't you love how these are scattered throughout the, epistle, the epistles that make you kind of scratch your head a little bit? But it says there, the end of verse 9, that God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions, after speaking of the throne that is forever and the scepter that is in the hand of the Son. Well, what does that mean? Well, what it's doing there is it's supporting the author's point that Jesus, the Son, is blessed beyond the angels. Okay, because in a, in a heavenly sense, where do the angels dwell? They dwell in the highest heavens, where they worship God around his throne. But in the sense that they are there with the Son, with God himself, they are companions. Because again, as we'll even see, even in their duties, they serve for the sake of salvation. And Jesus became incarnate for the sake of salvation and the glory of God therein. 
So the angels are his companions, but the anointing with the oil of gladness beyond them shows that even the text of Scripture explicitly says the Son has been exalted beyond the angels, the created beings. It moves on from there then to appeal in verse 10 and following to Psalm 102. Now this kind of goes a different direction. Psalm 102 is not this exalted sort of psalm speaking of the rule of God and just praising His glory in that way. But in fact, it's actually a lament that turns to praise, as most of the laments do in the psalms. And in this lament, what's going on there is it's contrasting the mutability of man in the form of his sufferings, his weaknesses, his afflictions. The psalmist is crying out about these things that he's suffering. He's being real about the things that are going on in his life. But then he turns in the midst of that psalm to what you read there in verses 10 through 12. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up, like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. Now, there's so much we could say by going into that psalm directly, but let's just simply leave it with this. It's significant that the psalmist there is suffering, and he's dealing with the fact that he can't control things, and that he's subject to things outside of himself that afflict him, and that he in himself is changing, subject to time, subject to decay. Of course, the negative parts of his change, changing being attributed to sin. And when he comes to that place and he considers his state before the Lord, his mind is drawn up to heaven and he takes solace and rejoices in the Creator, his work in creation, and his unchangeableness. The fact that he remains, his years have no end. Now, that's wonderful in and of itself, but notice, back in verse 8, but of the Son. The author of Hebrews is saying this that you read, this wonderful truth you read in Psalm 102, that's speaking of the Son. He laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of His hands. His years have no end. You know, there's an important doctrine, again, concerning the Trinity that we need to pull out of here, but we have to be so careful, as we saw in Sunday school this morning. It's, it's very easy to err when we make positive statements, or a lot safer when we make negative statements. In other words, it's a lot easier to say what God is not than to say what God is. And that's certainly true in talking of the doctrine of the Trinity, and especially the doctrine of the Son. But I imagine there has to be a question about how can it be that in the Old Testament we see passages like this that are speaking of God broadly, and in the New Testament we see that it said this is speaking of the Son. How can it be that there's not two different gods or three different gods? Well, one of the ideas that can help us in comprehending this is something that's called mutual indwelling. 
Right? So we're familiar with the term indwelling in that the Bible teaches that we who have been regenerated, who are in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Well, that's this, a similar sense to what we mean when we speak of mutual indwelling among the persons of the Trinity. All right, it would be that the Father indwells the Son and vice versa, the Son indwells the Spirit, and so forth. Now, why that's important is this, is because I think we can err in thinking that, okay, each person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are each possessors of this fourth thing, this divine essence. And that's not what the scriptures teach. There is no such thing as a fourth thing. Each person is completely and fully God, and God is one. There is no other. The takeaway, then, is that the Son is fully God, the Father is fully God, the Spirit is fully God, and therefore what is said of God at any point in the Scriptures is true of the fullness of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now in the grand scheme, you'll notice the author doesn't take much time to defend this proposition. Okay, He simply states it forth clearly. Now, the application of this and how this becomes relevant for the authors, again, we ask the question, well, this is some really high and, and difficult theology for some people who are just struggling with everyday obedience. What's the deal? Well, the application of all that is towards our tendency, because of sin, to become distracted and fixated on things that will not last and that were never intended to meet our true need. Now, this could be anything. It could be our job. We become wrapped up and consumed in our identity and our job. That's who we are. And we look to that for satisfaction and fulfillment. <coughs> it could be our status among a certain group. It could be our own legacy in worldly terms. And to give you an example, though, of what's being put forth here, you know, when men who serve in our military, they go overseas to... Um, to their station, to war, to whatever it may be, naturally they leave things behind. They can't take everything with them, and they'll leave certain things behind with a loved one. Now, maybe it's a watch, or maybe it's a jacket, or some memento of, of some sort. And that object usually is a precious thing to the one that it's left with. It reminds them of that person. It reminds them of fond memories. It's, it's nice. We all have things like that that have some sentimental value to them. Now, when that person comes back from serving, which is a wonderful thing, they come back by God's grace, they come back to you, you don't say to them, thanks for dropping by, but go ahead and be going now. I'm content with this jacket. I'm content with this watch. I'm content with this thing that you left behind. No, you rejoice that the one that that object reminded you of is now here before you. And you rejoice to have them with you. This is kind of the idea of the foolishness being warned against in this passage. That is, it's foolish to look to the old ways and to be content with the old ways instead of looking to the greater thing that has come, which is Christ. And he demonstrates his greatness in that he is the eternal son. He is the eternal, unchangeable God. No mere creature, no mere servant, but the one 
who is and is to come. He is before us. So we'll move on to the concluding section, but I would remind you of Colossians 3 and verses 1 and 2, which state, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. That's an apt summary of this central section of Hebrews 1. Set your mind on things that are above. God has come and dwelt among us. And finally, the passage concludes in verse 13 and 14 by appealing to Psalm 110 and verse 1, making the point that Jesus is superior as the one who rules forever. Now, we'll notice that Psalm 110 features prominently in this book, cited or alluded to no less than a dozen times, which means that its inclusion here, I mean, going back to that flow of thought, is very important, since he's going to come back to it later. In fact, it's already been alluded to in verse 3, where it says that after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Verse 13, Psalm 110, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The idea there is that Jesus' reign and conquering is quite relevant to exhorting struggling Christians to faithfulness and to assurance of their salvation. Now the points going before us that have already been made, this text is now pointing to the eternal purposeful rule of this Jesus. Now, Last week, we had to answer the question of what does it mean that Jesus is the heir of all things? In verses 1 through 4, it says he was appointed heir of all things. And this text in verse 13 shows us what it means that Christ is the heir of all things in light of the Psalms in 2 Samuel and Deuteronomy that was quoted before us. It's that all things will be brought to subjection beneath him. Now remember... By virtue of his power and creation, he has authority over everything already. He has a right over everything already. And so Hebrews is pointing not to his eternal right, you may say, over all things, by virtue of him being God, but it's pointing to what happened in the incarnation and in his exaltation. This whole text seems to look at that point of the exaltation, his seating at the right hand of the Father, after his resurrection, as that point in which it's declared, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And that point in which I will be to him a father. And that point at which God says, now sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. All things will be brought to subjection beneath him. God said this, God decreed it. He who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. Now again, how does that affect the audience? Well, there's a, there's a really entertaining commercial for Capital One that I've seen a number of times. And it has Hall of Fame basketball player Charles Barkley in it. And the commercial is this, that Charles Barkley's here and he goes to this kid's playground and the kids are picking teams for a pickup game of basketball. And the kid's making his choice and he picks Charles Barkley. And the point of the commercial is that it's a no-brainer decision to pick Capital One. Right? And so you have a Hall of Fame basketball player amidst the, a bunch of kids. Of course, that's an easy decision. Well, it's a similar kind of point being made here. This is a no-brainer. 
to look away from the angels and to look to the one to whom they ministered about, to look to the fullness of all things that have come. There is no comparison about the greatness of Christ. But it appeals to his rule to show the fact that not only is he just great, but he is carrying out a purpose in this creation. All enemies being brought beneath his feet. And notice the thought between verse 13 and 14 is that the certainty of Christ's rule and reign is directly linked with our salvation. That's a profound thought in a couple of ways. First, consider just who the angels are. All right? They, as we said, dwell in the presence of God. They offer worship to Him, facing directly as they can His holiness. We can only imagine how amazing that would be to experience. And that's what these angels have. And secondly, the exaltation of Christ has as its sole purpose just that, the exaltation of Christ, the glory of God. And behind this is the thought of Isaiah 48, 11, which tells us, my glory I will not give to another. That is, God is jealous for his own glory. But what I'm telling you is this, from the text, verse 13, the exaltation and enthronement and rule of Christ is linked directly in verse 14 to our salvation. Point is, our salvation is not just a fringe benefit, as it were, of God glorifying himself or a mere possibility if he feels like it on a certain day. No, it is an intrinsic part of his plan to carry out his decree. When Christ shed his blood for sins on the cross, it demonstrated God's love for us. When he was raised on the third day from the dead, it vindicated the work that was done. And his ascension is the guarantee that all the promises of salvation will be brought to completion in his elect. So as a final thought on this point, see how these angels then relate to our salvation. It says they are ministering spirits sent out to serve for our sake. These beings created for the glory and worship of God serving our redemption. And as the author prepares himself to go into chapter 2 to a further discussion of the new covenant, he's showing from the outset that the inheritance of salvation for God's people is a central theme of this new revelation that he's talking about, this final revelation that he's talking about. And the picture painted is that these angels are but changing, created servants of the eternal Son and His purpose in salvation. And in this way, the author convincingly answers the question, to whom shall we look? Where are we looking this morning? What else is competing with our focus upon Christ and our rest in Him? Might I remind you, in light of the quotation of Psalm 110, that every real enemy, I do say that every real enemy of God's children is an enemy of Christ. And the promise, not just of Hebrews 1, but of the entirety of the Scriptures, is that all of Christ's enemies will be made a footstool beneath His feet. In other words, they will be conquered. As 1 Corinthians 15 says, that final enemy to be conquered is death. And it will be defeated at His coming. 
And so the purpose here this morning from this text is that we would look to no other. That we would not be led astray by temptation or by trial or by anything else that would seek to take our focus off of Christ and on to temporal, changing things that cannot save, that cannot satisfy. And it's to point us to rest in Christ and to know that the victory has already been won. Why? Because He sits at the right hand of the Father and will do so and reign until all of those enemies are brought beneath His feet. Therefore, if you are trusting Christ and not yourself this morning, rest assured that you are secure in His hand. Rejoice in the salvation that you've been granted. And know that this has been done according to the good pleasure of your Father in heaven who works all things according to His will. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, We've heard much these last few weeks about assurance of our salvation and what a precious doctrine it is to us. But let us never grow prideful thinking that assurance is found anywhere in ourselves or in anything to do with ourselves. Let us always remember that our assurance is in Christ and what He alone has done. Therefore, all we can say is all praise and glory be to God alone. Thank you for this wonderful salvation. Give us increase of grace as we walk with you and teach us obedience in doing our Master's work until he comes. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you take out your hymnals and turn to number 284.